Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. This is God's word. Uh, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. This is the word of the living God. Well, I told Jamie this week that uh, turning to chapter 13 in the book of Hebrews, I felt like was turning to an entire different book. Uh, It's just so strikingly different from the rest of Hebrews that I think I'm still trying to get my bearings this morning on what uh, the Lord has for us this morning. I pray for his help And I pray even uh, that you would pray for us, uh, even as you listen this morning, because it is very different. Let's begin um, with where we've been, all right? So chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, uh, the author of Hebrews took us to Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. He put us at the foot of two mountains, and he said, you don't want to come to Mount Sinai Uh, In one sense, that is a covenant of works, and that mountain will kill you. You cannot produce what the law commands. So you have not come to that mountain, praise God, if you're a Christian. Jesus did. Uh, Jesus came to that mountain, and he suffered uh, what that mountain had to offer, and thereby you and I are not under the law as a condemnation, but we are under it as a rule of life. He then brought us to Mount Zion. He says, you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to Jesus, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and you have received an unshakable kingdom. And it was the greatest news that the sinner could ever have. You have been justified. You've been brought to Jesus. His blood has cleansed you for pardon. And you've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken unlike this world has been given. This world will fall apart. We've seen uh, nations fall apart, and this nation too will fall apart one day. But the Christian uh, kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven will not fail. That is the good news of the gospel. Then in verse 28 and 29, look there, we're in verse, or chapter 12 still. He gave us two exhortations, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom, and let us offer to God um, acceptable Worship. So these were a summons to respond to this gospel of grace. All that we've heard, not only in chapter 12, but the, probably the whole letter prior to chapter 12, the, the goodness of Jesus, the excellency of Jesus Christ. The author says you ought to be thankful, you ought to be grateful, and you ought to offer to God worship that is acceptable to him. What is that worship? Well, it entails reverence and awe, joy, sobriety, and gladness. Then we turn to chapter 13, and it's like a different letter, as I just said. Or is it? So often of the New Testament letters uh, speak, they front load with gospel, with indicative, who you are in Christ, who God is in Christ for you, And then it loads upon you commands or imperatives. You ought to live this way because of Jesus in the gospel for you. So 
Uh, Hebrews 13 is a last chapter in this great letter. It provides for us what it looks like. Uh, A life to be grateful. What does a life that is grateful look like in a Christian's day-to-day activity? Well, the answer comes in chapter 13. He's got a string of imperatives. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 to 3 today. Now, I need to, since we have a new chapter here and a different theme, I need to front load this message with a little bit of introduction. So bear with me, okay? Because we are coming to the theme of cultivating Christian virtue, a theme that I'm really, really excited about uh, learning more about uh, even this past week, but also wanting to learn more about in the coming week. So our theme this morning uh, is cultivating Christian virtue. So here's the front load of information. You got it? All right. Then we'll get to the text. Scott Swain, if you come across that name or own books by him, or if you don't own books by him, buy them. Okay. Scott Swain said in an article dated August 11, 2015, writes, quote, I love this, the church is a school of virtue. Virtue has not been an especially prominent topic in modern Protestant thought, Swain says. And he says, reasons for this are fairly easy to identify. One, a one-sided emphasis on justification to the neglect of other aspects of soteriology. And I say, maybe. I kind of want to say we need more of justification today from the pulpit and, and elsewhere. But he's Scott Swain, so I'll resist uh, disputing with him. Two, Worry about moralism and salvation by works. That's true. We tend to not talk about virtue a whole lot because we're worried about morality, moralism, and that'll, that'll dampen um, true sanctification. I want to go down that route. And third, a generalized sense that virtue is a topic of, I love this, Catholic rather than Protestant concern, which I thought, yeah. When you think of virtue, you probably think of Catholic rather than Protestant concern. He goes on and says, the relative neglect of virtue in modern Protestant thought, and this is in 2015, nevertheless constitutes a departure from earlier Reformed theology and more importantly from New Testament teaching. End quote. Did you know, church, that no less than 13 virtue lists appear in the New Testament? And there are 27, or 23 vice lists. Wow. Consider, for example, the place of virtue in the pastoral epistles. There Paul lists the virtues among the various graces that flow to us in Jesus Christ and must be exercised and strengthened through communion in Jesus Christ in the context of the local church. 1 Timothy 4 Titus 2. So if any of you are leaders in the church or aspire to be ministers of the gospel, virtues are something you want to pay great attention to. But what are we talking about when we use the word virtue? Let's define some terms. I learned that from Ian. Thank you. The term virtue comes from the Latin translation of the Greek word arete, meaning moral excellence. 
And you could go to Augustine and Aquinas and some other guys, but I'll stick to maybe modern contemporary readers that you might, uh, guys might know. Joe Rigney, president of Bethlehem Theological Seminary, defines virtue as, hear this, the habitual exercises and inclinations of the heart for good things. That's pretty good. Scott Swain again. The virtues biblically understood are not merely subjective attitudes or emotions. Virtues aren't just uh, emotions that are lurking beneath, right, that we just kind of fly off the handle. That would be a vice, I suppose. Swain says they constitute, virtues that is, qualities of character that rightly orient us toward objective realities, namely God and all things in God. He goes on, he says, the virtues, you've got to get this, the virtues flow from the gospel by which we are reformed and renewed in the image of God for lives that glorify God and benefit our neighbors. That's what virtues are. Basic definition. Greek philosophy identified four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and does anyone know the fourth? Temperance. Early church leaders such as Ambrose of Milan, Augustine, uh, added three theological virtues, faith, hope, and Good, but the greatest of these being 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Almost done. Ryan Griffith, in an article dated November 1st, 2021, at Desiring God, writes, quote, In the same way the seven deadly sins provide, I thought this was insightful, provide a diagnostic for disordered affections, The seven heavenly virtues provide a framework for spiritual formation. Generations of faithful Christians have used the language of heavenly virtues and deadly vices as means for growing in grace. And by recovering these tools for the modern church, which is what I'm trying to do today, or what the author is trying to do in the first century for the Hebrews, We are better equipped to present ourselves holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. End quote. That's Ryan Griffith. So virtues are a qualities of character. Think of 2 Peter 1, that they flow to us by the Spirit in the gospel, and we are transformed as, as we look upon God And then as we love him and love our neighbor, we are transformed by grace. You got that? That's what a virtue is as I see it. Now, two preliminary comments, and then we'll get to verse 1, I promise. First preliminary comment. Cultivating virtue is not how you get to Mount Zion. Right? There's a reason chapter 12 is before chapter 13. You don't cultivate these virtues 
and then say, oh, I've arrived at Mount Zion because of what I've done. No, chapter 12, verse 22, you have already come to Mount Zion and to Jesus, the gospel. And now by his grace, you work out these virtues in your life as you look to God and to your neighbor. All right. So cultivating virtue is not how you get to Mount Zion. We have to get law gospel right. Okay. Second preliminary comment. When you fail at cultivating virtue. In other words, when you fail at what we're going to talk about today in the weeks to come, and you will. Repent. Look to Jesus as your righteousness and start cultivating again. When you fail at cultivating virtue, repent, have a, what do I mean by that? You have not just an attrition of your sin so that you have a godly or you have a worldly remorse and a fear of punishment. So your sorrow for sin because this is attrition now. You're sorry for your sin because there's a fear of punishment that's going to come down on you. That's attrition. Biblical repentance is contrition. It is produced by the love of God in Christ towards you so that you are contrite and genuinely forsake sin, turn from it, and turn to God. There is a difference between a counterfeit repentance, attrition, and a biblical repentance, contrition. That's why God says in um, Isaiah 55 that he dwells with the contrite. It is produced by the love of God in Christ. So repent when you fail to do this. In fact, uh, you'll go home today and you will fail. Look to Christ as your righteousness and start cultivating again. You're thinking, wow, so I'm set up just to do, to do this cycle? Yes. Yep. That's the entire Christian life. All right. Verse 1. Cultivate Christian virtue. The first Christian virtue I want to cultivate is love. What Augustine said that um, if I had this right, Ian, just tell me afterwards I'm wrong or right. He said, I think, that uh, Augustine said that uh, love is the fountainhead of, of, of all the other virtues. So, um, so I think that's probably why it's front-loaded here in verse 1. He says, "Let look at your Bibles. Let brotherly love continue. So cultivate Christian love, number one. Brotherly love, Philadelphia. When used outside of Scripture... It refers to the natural affection of siblings. When used in Scripture, Philadelphia or brotherly love refers to the kind of love that binds together members of the family of God as brothers and sisters. So that's what um, the author here of Hebrews is getting at. Let brotherly love, let this let this mutual love that you have as brothers and sisters, let it cultivate, let it ruminate on your heart to love one another as family. And as you can see, I hope that the doctrine of adoption is undergirding this command, is it not? Justification has dealt with you as sinners in the courtroom. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, counted, counted righteous and justified in his sight. 
And then God takes you from the courtroom as a justified sinner. He takes you into his home in the doctrine of adoption. and considers you his child. And he says, look around. Now you have brothers and sisters as you are placed together in Christ's love. So the doctrine of adoption is really undergirding verse 1 here. Let's define what we're talking about here when I talk about cultivating Christian love. Quote, I have it in quotes, but I don't have the author. <laughs> I, th- I think this is um, probably Scott Swain. A special affection which exists among the children of God and is to be displayed through word and deed. Read that again. A special affection which exists among the children of God and is to be displayed through word and deed. So it's not a mere sentiment or particular emotion. Your brotherly love, your Philadelphia, is to be displayed through word and deed to each other. Okay? And it's not a love to all people equally, is it? It is, um, there is a distinction made. It is discriminatory, you might say. It discriminates on your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do good to all Galatians 6.10, but to especially those to the household of faith. And the fact that the New Testament speaks that every New Testament author speaks to this virtue demonstrates its importance. And I just want to look at three texts with you, all right, uh, that demonstrate this uh, virtue's importance. John 13, 34, and 35. Would you go there with me? Boys and girls, John, thir- John is the last gospel in the New Testament, so it's towards the beginning of your New Testament. John 13, 34, and 35. I just want to look at three texts with you. Okay, John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says to his disciples, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So there's adoption, there's this Philadelphia love there, you see it? You also are to love one another. And then he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus lays the weight of the manifestation of his glory in, in human, on a human level, he lays the weight of the manifestation of his glory in the world upon our love for each other. So the witness of the gospel to the world is in some regard laid at the feet of your love for each other. 1 Peter 1.22, second text.
1 Peter 1.22. Boys and girls, 1 Peter is near the end of your New Testament. It's after James, which is after Hebrews. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, there it is, from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So one of the virtues of regeneration or um, being born again by the gospel, one of the virtues of being born again is an earnest love for the brethren. This is why this room is filled with people who are very different. I imagine if you weren't Christians, you probably wouldn't be speaking to one another in some sense. But since you've been regenerated, born again, God has given you a deep love for each other as brothers and sisters. So brotherly affection is one of the virtues of regeneration. Last one, Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14. This is fascinating right here. He's listing virtue. This is one of those virtue vice lists that he talks about in the New Testament. Colossians 3.12 lists some virtues there. And then he says in verse 14, and above all these, talking about those previous virtues, meekness, patience, above all these put on love, which would probably support Augustine's stance, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, Next to love for Christ, here's how I read that. Next to love for Christ, love for the brethren is the virtue upon which church unity rests. There's nothing in that text, verse 12, look at it, about harshness. Meanness, critical spirit, none of that. Love for the brethren is the virtue upon which church unity rests. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13? You can have all the knowledge. You can be the expert in dogmatic theology. You can dot the I's and cross your T's and read all the right people. And you can have experiences with communion with God like no other person you know. And Paul says, if you do not have love, you are a big, fat zero. Love for your brothers and sisters. 
is what demonstrates the glory of God to this world. And it is that virtue upon which church, church unity rests. Now, there's a difficulty to this, this virtue, isn't there? There's always the possibility that the love you show will not be returned. And that's true in many of our lives. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, has a wonderful statement. He picks up on the difficulty of brotherly affection that happens inside the local church. Lewis writes, quote, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping intact, keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements, Lewis says. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, Lewis says. And then he says with profound insight, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. You know, beloved, you could be safe and never grow. Or you can love, and Christ will change you from one degree of glory to the next in this life. So we are to cultivate Christian love. These next two are probably best understood. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 again. These next two virtues are probably best to understood as expressions of the virtue love, but we'll treat them separately for our purposes this morning. Two, cultivate Christian hospitality. Cultivate Christian hospitality. Uh, do not neglect, he says, to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. In the Greco-Roman period, seeking lodging at inns could be quite dangerous. These weren't like our hotels. Travelers sought accommodations in private dwellings, such as homes whenever possible, because these inns were dangerous. Caring for strangers was highly regarded among God's people. Genesis 18, Judges 19, Job 31, Acts 10, Acts 21. In fact, I'm not sure where the early church would have been without the gift of hospitality. Hospitality involved offering strangers lodging as well as food and drink. Hear this, with a special emphasis on those who could give nothing in return. Luke 14, Matthew 25. It's best, I think, to view strangers here. What are we talking about here? What's, who are the strangers? Well, I think it's best to view strangers here as believers who are outside of our local congregation. Mm, missionaries or 
Other Christians, perhaps, who for whatever reason find themselves in need of lodging and spiritual edification. So the stranger is probably confined to believers, but we also must remember our Lord's command or our call. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have, he says? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't don't the Gentiles even do this, Jesus says? The world loves its own. You love the world. What are we talking about when we talk about hospitality? Quote, hospitality is a concrete and personal expression of Christian love intended to include strangers in a circle of care. And he says, do not neglect. Don't you love that phrase? The sharp yet humble uh, yet gentle imperative. Do not neglect. Don't forget. Do not abandon, he's saying, this this uh, present condition or this present expression of love. Ecclesiastical disputes. We don't have those, do we? Relational tension. These dampen our cultivation of Christian hospitality. And so we invite only those who agree with us to our homes because we don't want to invite those that we disagree with. That's hospitality for each other, but as we already mentioned, there's a hospitality that must be given to those outside of the faith. Rosaria Butterfield, I think, did a good job in her book, quote, too many of us are sidelined by fears. This is why we don't extend hospitality to those outside of the faith. We're sidelined by fears. And Butterfield just has a way of an arrow right through your heart. She says, we fear that people will hurt us. We fear that people will negatively influence our children. We long for the days gone by, Butterfield says. Our sentimentality makes us stupid. And she says, we need to snap ourselves out of this self-pitying dream. The best days are ahead, she says. Jesus advances from the front of the line. Years ago, Nikki Knott led our church through that book. Probably do for it again. More importantly, she reminded us of our responsibility and privilege to see our home as the front door to this church. Or maybe a soccer field or a coffee shop, whatever it may be. Congregation, I want you to hear me now. People don't need another program to meet their needs. You know that? They don't need another program to meet their needs. They need a community to which they can belong. They don't need to be one of our projects. They are not. And I don't blame them. They want friends. They want to know someone cares for them. And that's what hospitality can offer. That's what it did for the early church. And that's what it needs to do today. If they reject the gospel, so be it. That's to their peril. 
so be it. But let us extend hospitality to those who don't know Christ. I found, let me just read a couple of paragraphs from this book. We read it for Sunday school. I, I found some of these words strikingly provoking. Truman says, ironically, the LGBTQ plus community is proof of this point. Here's what got me. The reason they have moved from the margins to center stage. I wonder what you would. Uh, wonder what your answer would be is intimately connected to the strong communities they formed while on the margins. This is why lamentation for Christianity's cultural marginalization, while legitimate, cannot be the sole response of the church to the current social convulsion she is experiencing. <laughs> Lament for sure, Truman says. We should lament that the world is not as it should be, as many of the Psalms teach us. But also, Truman says, organize. Become a community. By this, the Lord says, all shall know, all men shall know that you are my disciples by the love you have for each other. And then he quotes John 13, 35. And that means community. A couple more statements here. Many Christians talk of engaging culture. That's everywhere today. Engage culture, engage culture. In fact, the culture is most dramatically engaged by the church presenting it with another culture. <laughs> another form of community rooted in her liturgical worship practices and manifested in the loving community that exists both in and beyond the worship service. So when unbelievers come in here, they just say, what is this place? Man, they love each other. Are they some of the, from the same family? But also beyond these walls. Many talk of the culture war between Christians and secularism. And certainly the Bible itself uses language to describe the spiritual conflict of this present age. But perhaps, quote, cultural protest, end quote, is a way of better translating that idea into modern idiom Given the reality and his history of physical warfare in our world, the church protests the wider culture by offering a true vision of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. Let's cultivate Christian hospitality both inside the local church and also outside to those who need it. Well, third, Cultivate Christian compassion. Again, probably another extension of the virtue of love. Verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. One of my favorite heroes of the faith is a woman by Mary Honeywood. 1527 to she was born in 1527 died in 1620 Mary Honeywood so 93 years old 16 children 114 grandchildren 
228 great-grandchildren, nine great-great-grandchildren. Yeah, wow. That's 367 descendants. That's a lot of grandma postcards or I don't know what they had back then. Or that's a one for each day of the year or, and then two. Um, 367 descendants. All right. Mary Honeywood. What does she have to do with verse 3? During the reign of Queen Mary, middle of the 16th century, Mary Honeywood visited Protestant prisoners in the Newgate prison to pray with them and to encourage them in the faith. Her family records show that she received a number of letters from the early Puritan John Bradford, which you could buy from the Banner of Truth, these letters that were in correspondence between John Bradford and Mary Honeywood. Bradford was a major help to Mary in her struggle with assurance. And the stability one needs to have as they think about their life in Christ. When Bradford was led to the stake to be burned on July 1st, 1555, Mary lost her shoes in the commotion of the crowd. She walked back into town, bought another pair of shoes, and walked back to Newgate Prison to see her friend be burned at the stake. A friend that she visited time and time again in prison to pray with and to encourage in the faith. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, the unborn perhaps, since you also are in the body. I'm almost done, but I just want you to see the, the reason why we advocate for the unborn or advocate for those who are mistreated and why Mary Honeywood uh, would walk to the prison cell and visit with a man like John Bradford. The reason the author tells us, since you also are in the body we are one body. When one member suffers, uh, we all suffer. And Mary Honeywood uh, probably understood that better than most. John Owen says, union is the most proper fruit of love. No duty, he says, of the saints in the gospel is pressed with more earnestness than this. Now, we must fight the fight of the gospel, wage the good warfare, absolutely. But I think Owen, and certainly in the context of Hebrews 13, it's the manner in which we fight. It's the manner in which we fight. Our church covenant says we will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We are one body, though many members. And so with tenderness and happiness, we bear with each other. When one member suffers, all suffer together. Let me just close with just four practical ways to cultivate Christian love in this church. And I'll just be quick. 
Number one, uh, be sensitive and moved for various burdens in the church. Be sensitive and moved for various burdens in the church. Colossians 3.12. Deacons, if I may single you out, uh, we need to be more concerned, or not more concerned, but in addition to uh, buildings and budgets, I think deacons need to have their ear to the ground to benevolence. What is going on in our church? And what are ways we can support? Ways to care for each other? What are the burdens happening in our body? Who's lost a job? Who's lost a loved one? Who needs a visit? These are things we need to be sensitive to, Christians. And number two, show courage and boldness to own each other without shame. Show courage and boldness to own each other without shame. Mike does evangelism. Some of you go with him. And Addison came with us the other day with Robert and I to Mines. And I was just watching Robert and Addison do evangelism. Those are my brothers over there. I'm not ashamed of those men out there sharing the gospel and testifying to what's going on. See Mike out there doing the same. I don't care what the world calls them. My brothers and sisters out there sharing Christ. Don't be ashamed of each other. Warts and all. And everybody has warts. Don't be ashamed. Show courage and boldness to own each other without shame. Third, personal visits and sickness and troubles in order to comfort and refresh people. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Um, I was hungry and thirsty and, and you came to me and, and you refreshed me. You gave me a cup of water and the disciples said, what are you talking about? I didn't ever see you when I was doing these things. And he said, you did this to my people. You did it to me. You did it to them. You did it to me. Uh, show personal visits and times of troubles and sickness to comfort and refresh the brethren. Again, have an ear, have a heart to what's gone on in the body to display brotherly affection. And fourth, administer spiritual and earthly assistance to specific conditions. Administer spiritual and earthly assistance to specific conditions. Yes, we need to care for the, the immaterial, the soul, how the person is doing, but does someone need a physical help? Well, we need to care for the body as well. Administer spiritual and earthly assistance to specific conditions. I stand here today as a minister of the gospel of this church, and I can humbly say and proudly say uh, that uh, this church does a job well done in brotherly love. It's a joy to be a minister of the gospel at this church. And so I say with the pastor of Hebrews, let brotherly love not begin, uh, but continue in this church. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray for the virtue of love in our church. Lord, we have a tenacity about doctrine, and I'm so thankful for that a tenacity for truth, 
And you've given that to us by your sheer mercy and grace. And I pray we hold strong and firm to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. May we never be moved. Never be moved off of our faith. But, oh God, inasmuch as we hold firm to the faith, may we also hold firm to one another. May we own each other in love. May we own each other in love and never be ashamed. You are not ashamed of us to be our elder brother and to be our Savior. May we never be ashamed of each other. Praise God for the gospel and for Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.